What type of man has a sloppy chewing tobacco spit? This man spit his dip spit all over my bushy shag carpeting. Wouldn't you like a cleaner discharge? I sure would. I'm Mr. Clean, left fielder for the Lower Manhattan Gambinos, and if baseball has taught me one thing, it's that you have to have clean spit. Introducing Cheyenne Mulch, the chewing tobacco world's driest dip yet. Made by Winston-Salem, the chiefs of the dipping world, now with even less moisture to keep your chew drier than the Gambino's infield. Tastes like the best kind of dust. Go ahead and spit it out so I can kiss that clean mouth. Not today, ma'am. I'm on deck. Batter up! That's my cue. Hope I can get the runner home from second. It's a tie game. Okay. Better spit out that last little bit, though. This commercial goes on for about three more minutes. Radio time was very cheap back then, and if you had a celebrity in your commercial, you could hold the audience's attention span for four, five minutes, probably. But you know who wasn't cheap? Mr. Clean. We are proud to announce the signing of Mr. Clean, the home run king, on a three-year, $750,000 contract. Jesus fucking Christ! So much, that's fucked! Back then, $750,000 would have bought you Poland. That was a clip from the press conference unveiling Mr. Clean's signing right before the start of the 1979 season. But how did he get there? Born in 1949 outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Yevgeny Dvorak came from a family of Czech steelworkers. Gene, for short, which would eventually become Clean Gene, he showed athletic prowess from an early age, much to the chagrin of his steelworking family. Steel was always a big part of his family. When he signed for the Gambinos, they, instead of rejoicing, were incensed that their son would shake the hand of Carmine Gambino, the man who killed Jimmy Hoffa. See, the Dvorjaks were union men through and through, so much so that they dubbed Gene Mr. Clean because he refused to make an honest living working in the mill and instead wanted to prance around in a silly little uniform and hit a ball with a stick. Just how good was Mr. Clean? Mr. Clean was a generational talent. He was more than the fabled five-tool player hitting, hitting for power, running, fielding, and throwing. Yogi Berra famously said this in regards to Mr. Clean. That boy isn't a five-tool player. He's a six-tool player. What's a six-tool? Having all five tools at once. Mr. Clean was signed right out of high school by the Pittsburgh Pirates. In his first and only year in the minors, he hit 353 with 39 homers. He then proceeded to rip off one of the most impressive five-year streaks in the history of the game. Winning MVP twice in 1975 and 1977, he led the historically disappointing Pirates to five consecutive playoff berths. The people of Pittsburgh eyed the 1978 offseason as a reckoning. They knew the city might not be able to afford their folk hero left fielder, who was up for a huge contract. But Mr. Clean held a press conference that gave the city hope. I have never been outside the city of Pittsburgh for anything other than baseball. I was born here, and I will die here. You can put that in stone. Two days later, Carmine Gambino presented him with a giant stone check for $750,000.
the three-quarters of a million-dollar man had a rough start to his debut season in the Big Apple. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was the fact that he was suddenly playing 600 feet in the air. Or maybe it had something to do with Pittsburgh fans who, no matter what city he was in, would buy tickets down the third baseline and constantly throw batteries at him. He needed a drastic change, and it seems like he got one after Ricky the Weasel broke his pinky. At a taping of Saturday Night Live, the hottest ticket in town, Mr. Clean struck up a chat with the host, fellow Pennsylvania icon Sylvester Stallone. As Stallone said in the documentary, Big Guys, Tiny Needles. Yeah, Hollywood actually got steroids before any of the athletes did. This was coming off of Rocky, and you know, I was, I was a big guy. I could have pulled the bus in half. So I told him where he needed to go. The next day, Mr. Clean hopped on a plane to Yugoslavia, where there was a secret celebrity hospital that he could get treatment at. This was sold to the media as a trip to the motherland, and no one in America knew the difference between Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. They just knew that that place was bad. He left the country in May with a mop of sandy blonde hair, weighing 190 pounds. He returned three weeks later, completely bald and a beefy 245 pounds. When asked about his startling transformation, he attributed it to his babushka's goulash. Having passed the MLB drug testing process, which at the time was simply being asked by the MLB commissioner if he was on that commie super soldier juice, Mr. Clean returned to the Gambino lineup and had the best season of his career. Now, Nate, what do you remember from that season? So many things. I remember the home run he hit in San Francisco that went so far out into the bay that it hit an oil tanker, causing a massive oil spill that almost put Exxon out of business. But mostly, I remember the screaming coming from the dugout at any time. It didn't matter what camera they cut to, Mr. Clean's motivational scream sessions could always be picked out. Oh! Quiet, beautiful day of ball with the Gambinos cruising to a win against the Royals. As the pitch comes in, the Deeds. Hey! Hey! Get more fucking excited! Hey! Oh, ball two. Score is 9 nothing Gambinos. Boy, that Mr. Clean loves baseball, huh? The Gambinos had every reason to be excited riding Mr. Clean's bat into an easy World Series berth. Game one looked like a gimme. The fully healthy Gambinos took advantage of a pitching change for the Pickers, as their scheduled starter, 21-year-old phenom Colby Bryant, was a last-minute scratch. Mr. Clean started the scoring off with a two-run, 525-foot first-inning homer off of veteran journeyman Earl Harbour. Earl Harbour's doing his fairy wind-up. Fastball count and... Oh! There's a no doubt a home run for the Gambinos, and it's hitting, yeah, right into downtown Nashville. I open it's Kenny Rogers right in his fucking head, and knocks a big hole right in his cowboy hat, and all the other Nashville boys come over and fuck it. Two nothing Gambinos. Mr. Clean was all over this game. No matter what we threw at him, he knocked it out of the park. 
Another dinger, baby, the Gambinos are here. You hear that, Charlie Daniels? The devil went down to Nashville, and the devil is me. I'm here, and I will fight every single one of you fucking howdy duties. I'm at the Motel 6 on Overland Avenue, room 221. Come knock on my door, and I'll knock you out, two at a time. God, I hate this fucking city. He even had a great defensive play later in the game. No, I don't think Mr. Clean can catch this. Get ready for some disappointment, Gambino's fans. And he got it. That's the catch of the year. Well, gadzooks. I remember this game because it made me cry. Because it wasn't just Mr. Clean, it was everyone up and down the lineup. Was there any reason to have hope after game one? Not much, but at least we had the wacky inside the park home run from Saman Suleiman. This is Joe Doyle up to bat. Oh, I'm sorry. Saman Suleiman. And he takes the first pitch straight up the pitcher's chow hole and deep into the gap. That's gonna carry him off the stage where the bands play that juts out into the outfield. That stage will send a ball anywhere. And it's way over Leroy Brown's head and Joe Doyle's rounding third. He's gonna get an inside the park home run without a throw to the plate. And he is on his knees now facing east. He has some kind of rug. I'm confused. What was that guy's name? Well, it's complicated. See, from 72 to 78, the picker's second baseman was named Joe Doyle. And then one night in the offseason, he was arrested for public intoxication and during his time in jail, converted to Islam. How long was he in jail for? 24 hours. So he converted to Islam in the drunk tank? That's correct. He made the Hajj to Mecca in the 78 offseason and came back with the name Saman Suleiman. He tried to join the Nation of Islam, and when he was rejected for being white, he just started dressing in the traditional African clothing anyway. Were they cool with that? No, he got jumped a lot. And tell me more about the stage the ball careened off of. Oh yeah, the Dolly Parton Performance Center located in center field. The Reverend decided that instead of fighting the Grand Ole Opry, he would just bring the Grand Ole Opry to the stadium. So on days when the pickers weren't playing, and on some days when they were, they would hold concerts in center field. A lot of the time, they couldn't get the stage cleared, and it just kind of became part of the field. Like the ivy on the wall in Wrigley. Yeah, but if the ivy also caused a lot of career-ending injuries. Sometimes there would be like 8,000 people there for the baseball game, because 22,000 seats were already full for the Bachman-Turner Overdrive concert. Oh, yeah, I think I heard about the time that Tom Jones got knocked out by a fly ball. That was this place. Yeah, yeah, I was there. Everybody went nuts. See, we all loved Teddy Kroon's because he would always try to hit whoever was playing, especially if they were from any foreign country. Now, back to the game. This was a blowout, which means the Holy Cow Stadium, like in any blowout, had to pull out all the stops to entertain Nashville fans. It was kind of like an amusement park. Yeah, that was the giant wheel of cheese night where they would roll this enormous cheese wheel around the concourse and fans would take forks and hack chunks off. You could always tell where it was in the stadium because every fan in that section would suddenly get out of their seats and sprint up to the concourse no matter what was happening. The Reverend liked to keep people busy. Oh yeah, he had prayers on the Jumbotron constantly, they did chili cook-offs at the concession stands, and if it was a blowout loss, the Brethren would bring out the town center, and they gave him a Lord's bath where they put a shroud over his head and re-baptized him for a few minutes. Uh, that, is that waterboarding? That is now waterboarding, yes. 
And who are these brethren that you keep talking about? Oh, the brethren. They were these kind of unofficial mascots for the pickers. They wore masks that looked like those comedy and tragedy masks, but only the ones that were frowning. And they were just kind of around, making sure that no one was in the stand sinning, getting everybody excited. Some of them had big wood clubs or axes. It was cool, fun. I heard about them in a documentary called Evil Incarnate. In the late 1970s, Nashville was essentially a religious police state, and the Holy Cow Stadium was their Reichstag, a place of violence, horror, and obscene, widely accepted religious fanaticism. I remember them being cool. But they weren't. They killed so many people. You know that, right? I know that's what a lot of people choose to believe. Oh, hey guys, it's Nate. And I'm here to talk about today's sponsor of A Closer Look, an amazing new product, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Released in 2014, Interstellar tells the tale of Matthew McConaughey, an astronaut desperately trying to find a new planet to help humanity survive a dying Earth. It's not too long. A lot of people will tell you it's too long, but it's not. Christopher Nolan struggles sometimes with romantic stuff, but I don't let that bother me. I think space is awesome, and most of the movie is set in space. Listeners of A Closer Look in particular will like it because a lot of the time, there's a guy talking, and you don't have to listen to all of it. But if you zone out, you can get caught up pretty easily. Not like Inception. You went to pee in Inception, and you walk back into the theater like, am I in the wrong theater? Why is it snowing? There's a bunch of really cool scenes in it, and the score by Hans Zimmer is wonderful and adds a lot to it. Sometimes late at night, I'll go on 15-mile bike rides and listen to the score from Interstellar and pretend that my bike is a spaceship and I'm an astronaut. One time I veered into a wooded area and fell off, and when I came to, my head was bleeding, and as I looked out into the trees at some teens shining their phone flashlights at me and menacingly beating on the trees with branches, I really thought I was Matthew McConaughey looking through the time travel library. Whoops, spoiler. I think Interstellar is on Amazon Prime, but you don't need to go there. Just comment Interstellar on our page in the Apple Store and give us a five-star rating, and I won't send you a copy via email. I will not send it to you within an hour or two, free of charge. Game one was over by the sixth inning. The Gambinos were up 7-1, and their starter, Lane Bryant, was cruising outside of the freak inside the park home run. After the end of the goat sacrifice in the top of the seventh inning, Nashville manager Cedric N. Tertainer had his back against the wall. He was outgunned and in a hole at home to start a World Series. But Cedric wasn't the first Tertainer to find himself here. The name Tertainer is synonymous with bad luck in baseball. Cedric's grandfather, Maynard Tertainer, was the manager of the infamous 1919 Chicago White Sox, a.k.a. the Black Sox. His son, Ron Tertainer, was managing a 1942 St. Louis Cardinals team that was poised to win every World Series between 1942 and 1945. But when they all came back in 1946 from military service, they were 30 pounds lighter and all had PTSD. In 70 years of baseball, this year was the Tertainer's family's closest shot, and it was almost already gone. 
from his autobiography, The Original Kings of Baseball. Sport of baseball brought nothing to me ever, mostly pain. Put my father and his father in early graves, kept me up 20 hours a day, 40 years of my life. I was all set to leave the sport to go ride around the country on trains in 1969. And then the reverend called and asked if I wanted to manage his new baseball team. And I thought to myself, this is it. Sins of my past knocking at my door. I realized I could not quit baseball, so I had not yet suffered enough. Cedric had a very hands-off approach to managing, allowing players to sub themselves in and out of the game at will. Each game when deciding a batting order, he simply placed the name of his players in a hat and then drew them out at random. When asked about his strategy, he said, We are all trapped in this cosmic opera, dancing for a sick, twisted, perverted god who will one day forget about us if he hasn't already. After retiring, he started writing extremely depressing frontier crime novels and won the Nobel Prize for Literature. His odd, detached style of managing made him widely loved among his players. That love was baffling to Cedric, who had given up on love as a concept. After losing a regular season series to the Phillies in 1959, on a pickoff error that Dertainer said was exactly out of a dream that he had been having ever since he was a small boy. And in real life, much like in the dream, he was powerless to stop it. So in game one, what did he do? Well, according to reports, he said to his players, who cares? This doesn't matter. And his players said, what, the game? And Cedric said, sure, that counts. And he put in his two worst relievers for the last innings and gave his hitters the green light to swing at everything and steal on every pitch. This is crazy. And it just so happened that they still lost big time. But the hitters seemed relaxed, having fun, doing dances, eating so much cheese, and the relievers did great. 46-year-old Goose Durango pitched his first game of the decade after spending the previous nine years battling a food addiction and type 2 diabetes. When asked why he was on the roster, Tertainer said, if Goose Durango is not on the lineup, he will go elsewhere and death will follow. Durango struck out the side, throwing with control he had never shown his whole career. Bench player Travis Barker later said it was the only time he had ever seen Cedric smile. Young reliever Felix Navidad was sent to the mound to close out the game. The 23-year-old Puerto Rican was on his way out of the league due to his lack of control and love of pranks. He and Goose Durango were famous for their antics in the bullpen. We were able to speak with Picker's closer, Ken Opener. It was like being in the trenches of World War One. You knew something was coming, you didn't know when. All you knew was you couldn't go anywhere. Ken, was that bad? That sounds horrible. It was traumatic, but also incredibly inspirational. In the 70s, your bullpen needed seven guys in the pen. A closer, a backup closer, a setup man, long relief guy, a lefty specialist, and two guys who were awful at pitching and great at pranks. And Felix and Goose were horrible pitchers, and they were the best pranksters a team could ever have. What kind of pranks did they do? I remember one day I got a call in the bullpen and was told that I was traded to the Red Sox. Thing was, we were playing the Red Sox. So I just walked over to the Red Sox bullpen. Later in the game, the Sox had a one-run lead, and I was called in to close. I pitched a 1-2-3 inning. And only after the game was I told that I wasn't traded 
and this was all an elaborate prank by Felix and Goose. So I'm the only pitcher in MLB history to successfully win a game against his own team. And did they only prank guys in the bullpen? Oh no, no one was safe. I remember after one wheel of cheese night, they shut the water off in the locker room and told Opie that the reverend said no one was allowed to shower until Opie ate all the leftover cheese. And Opie, God bless that simple boy, sat down and ate what must have been nine pounds of cheese in 15 minutes. Afterwards, when Felix and Goose said they were pranking him, Opie said, what is a prank? And they explained what a prank was, which confused Opie, because I'm pretty sure up to that point, he was not aware of the concept of lying. He sat out the next few games after eating all that cheese, got extremely sick. Only time he ever missed a game, now that I think about it. But there were no practical jokes after the game one loss, because Nashville fans were up in arms. Literally, the marshal started shooting as soon as the last pitch was thrown, and the residents of Nashville all got their guns and began shooting into the sky in rage. As a nine-year-old child, that traumatized me in ways that I am still not fully aware of. I remember that so many guns were fired upwards that Nashville was declared a no-fly zone for the next 12 hours, and residents had to stay home for fear of falling bullets. This was from Reverend Ted's autobiography. Upon hearing about the gunplay, I knew I had to put a stop to that. So I got into my eight-wheeled Cadillac monster truck that I had named the Blessed Tank of Jerusalem and drove around town pleading with the townsfolk to stop firing into the air and instead start shooting into the ground to try to kill the devil. Also later that night, the brethren robbed a bank. The brethren are bad. They are not good. But amidst this ocean of chaos, Cedric Entertainer's post-game press conference was an island of calm. He sat with only one other player, Opie White. And basically, since there's no reason to do anything, there's no reason to not enjoy life. Try to have fun, because the alternative is worse than death, and death is at least peaceful. Uh, sir, the question was, how do you plan to get more batters on base in game two? We're going to do just fine in game two. Because, because this boy right here is a great baseball player. And we need to cherish him while we still can. The young man he was referring to is Opie. At the time, nobody thought much of Cedric Entertainer's post-game breakdown, because he often got emotional after games, usually when speaking about pollution and our society's dependency on fossil fuels. But this one was different. And as he looked at his star player with tears in his eyes, one had to wonder if he knew what was to come. The tragedy, the humanity, the death of Opie White. Next time on A Closer Look.